HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Paula Johnson, Curator, Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we'll learn... How exactly did Julia's Child's Kitchen end up in the Smithsonian? And about the latest food and wine history programming at the American History Museum. We'll also hear Paula's Julia Moment. Stay tuned to learn what is a Julia Moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. What could be more fitting than to talk about Julia's Kitchen on the podcast named in its honor? Julia's Kitchen was the co-star of many of her later television series, as well as a focus of fascination for many. It was and is a manifestation of Julia's life and career. It was also the hub of activity in her Cambridge, Massachusetts house, the place where she cooked, experimented, tested recipes, and nourished her extended family, the veritable heart of the home. This kitchen was the venue from which she taught cooking to the public and introduced thousands to the world's bright lights she had discovered. These are similarly the aspirations of this podcast, and hence why we called it Inside Julia's Kitchen. It's hard to think about Julia's Kitchen in the Smithsonian without thinking about one of its key custodians, curator extraordinaire Paula Johnson. Paula was instrumental in immortalizing Julia's kitchen and is with us today to share how exactly did an entire kitchen 
make its way into the permanent collection of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, the very place where America's history is chronicled for posterity. Welcome to the podcast, Paula. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to welcome you. I'm really excited to talk to you about the history of Julia's Kitchen. For those who haven't heard this story before, Paula and her colleagues recognized early on how important one single kitchen, that being Julia's, was to contemporary American history. But I also think it's fair to say its collection has surpassed everyone's expectation, even maybe Julia's. So Paula, tell us the story of how Julia's actual kitchen came to be in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. I'm happy to tell that story because it's one of the highlights of my Smithsonian career. It was, of course, 2001, and we, like everyone else, read in the New York Times that Julia Child would be leaving her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and moving back to her uh, her home state of California, back to Santa Barbara. And, you know, we asked ourselves what we usually do, which is, well, what is going to happen to all of the things in her kitchen? What is going to happen to her stuff? And um, it turned out that some of our colleagues here at the Smithsonian, uh, who were also members of the AIWF, uh, uh-huh. the organization founded by Julia, um, were wondering the same thing. And so over the course of several hours, many phone calls and lots of uh, discussions about, well, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, my colleague, Raina Green, who's a curator here in the Division of Home and Community Life, who has since retired, but she decided to take matters into her own hands and picked up the phone and dialed Julia's number in Cambridge. A cold call that might go down in history as well. But anyway, I love this part of the story, so I'm getting over it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so Julia answered her, her own phone. Raina explained who we were, that we were interested in speaking with her before she left her, her home in Cambridge, and that we wanted to talk about her kitchen and, and sort of the memories of the uh, tools and equipment and her work in that kitchen. So, you know, Julia, being so gracious, said, yes, please, come ahead. And uh, the three of us, Raina, Nancy Edwards, and I, got on a plane the very next day and landed in Cambridge, ready to see what was up. And um, Julia welcomed us across the threshold into the kitchen. And honestly, Todd, you know, we had sort of imagined, well, maybe we'll talk to her about collecting a few iconic objects, you know, some copper, a copper bowl, you know, some balloon whisks, some the garland range, something like that. But honestly, when we crossed that threshold into the kitchen, it was a mind meld. The three of us at the very same time thought, the whole kitchen, that's what makes sense. That is what... So so what was it that instantaneous? It, It wasn't that you were there for an hour looking at pots. It was kind of a very immediate sensation. Yes, it was just, it was immediate. It hit all three of us. And we had, you know, one of those looks where you look at each other and you're like, okay, here we go. And um, basically, you know, we were making little mental inventories looking around. And she, you know, she welcomed us to that beautiful table uh, in the middle of the kitchen. We sat down and and started talking about the Smithsonian, about our food history project, about what we were hoping to achieve in helping Americans uh, and our, our big audience understand, you know, the importance of um, caring about food and ingredients. And what better way to convey that message than to 
have Julia Child's Kitchen uh, at the Smithsonian. And Paula, I think one thing that would be helpful for people to understand, like how often would you say the three of you had collected an entire room or part of a building before? Um, that would be never. Um, we we have collected many things. Uh, we have collected, uh, you know, objects from California wine country, from, uh, you know, people who, like Chuck Williams of Williams-Sonoma. We have collected um, archives from people. We've done oral history interviews, but never have the three of us uh, looked at something, had this immediate response and then, you know, really started to explain why to Julia, why it was important for us to ask for everything. <laughs> now, I remember a story that, that Phyla Cousins, who's Julia's um, niece and, and a trustee of the foundation, that Phyla says, I think this is when Raina called, that after the phone call or somewhere in the middle of it, when Phyla turned to Julia and said, it's the Smithsonian calling and they're interested in your kitchen. And Julia said something like, oh, well, that's silly. Why would they want that? Do, do, have you heard that story before? I have heard that story from Phyla herself, and it's a marvelous story because it really shows that, you know, Julia was not thinking of herself as a, you know, a celebrity, you know, somebody who, you know, might have a, a lasting place in a museum. Um, you know, she just didn't quite understand what it would mean uh, that we would want to collect her kitchen. Um, but as as Phyla tells the story, um Julia asked the question. Phyla said, of course. And um, so that was how we ended up in that kitchen on that hot day in August of 2001. So so she was already, by the time you arrived as a threesome and decided you needed the whole thing, she had been persuaded already. Well, I'm not sure of the timing, whether it was um, before we arrived or whether it was um, after we had been there for a couple of hours. Because really, we didn't know that we wanted to collect the whole thing. Again, we were thinking about um, iconic objects um, and, you know, not imagining that we would be able to collect the whole thing. So I think that phone call must have taken place sometime while we were there. We were there for a couple of days. and um, Well, because presumably you had to call someone back in Washington to get approval to move forward with the whole thing. Oh, no. <laughs> we um, decided to um, really document what it was. We couldn't really ask for approval if we didn't know exactly what we were asking for, if you see my, oh, what I, I see. mean. So we did a complete inventory of everything. Um, we divided the room up into sectors. We um, you know, basically opened up every cupboard, every drawer, looked in every um, cabinet, uh, made lists of everything and keyed it to where it was in the kitchen because we knew that if we were successful in collecting this, we would want to put things back exactly where they were. We wanted to know the arrangement uh, that Julia had uh, developed uh, over these years to have the kitchen that worked best for her. Um, so typically, uh, something like this, we have our case, what we call our collections committee case, where we write up the memo of all memos and um, basically justify bringing 1,200 parts and pieces of a building, you know, into the permanent collections of the museum. And um, so we we took our inventory, we took our photographs, 
um, we had made notes uh, from Julia because when we were doing the inventory, of course, we didn't know what everything was. And so she was able <laughs> to... she had so many gadgets, especially. Of, yeah. um, <laughs> even still, I know I've asked you in the installation, what is that exactly? Yeah, well, there were there were things where we would open the you know the gadget drawer, and she was a self-avowed you know gadget freak, and there were things that looked rather familiar, but uh, none of us had seen before. So while she had basically left us to our own devices, because she had work to do. I mean, she was 89 years old, but she still had a lot of work she was doing in her her home office upstairs. So she left us uh, in the kitchen to do this work. She would come down occasionally to see how we were doing, and we had this little pile of things um, that we would ask her to identify. You know, fist scalers being one thing that she had quite a few uh, examples of. <laughs> As of you need, many um, fist scalers. So, um, you know, we uh, made the case to our collections committee, and um, we it was approved. What we realized is that there are a lot of people in our our museum, many colleagues through all divisions of the museum uh, who loved Julia and who really appreciated um, her message and her, you know, the teaching over so many years um, to inspire people to try new things and to, uh, you know, learn how to cook. So we had support um, from the museum. Of course, we didn't have any money at all to do this, but um, what we've started to call then, you know, Julia Karma is that, you know, things would just happen in our favor to help us make this happen. And so people uh, donated um, services, donated their time, uh, helped us in all sorts of ways to uh, do the hard work of actually packing everything and then shipping it down here to the museum. So maybe flash us forward to... Because now now the kitchen is essentially in its second installation in the museum, and it was originally a temporary exhibit. So kind of flashes forward to the present, maybe key milestones between after it was removed and the first part of its installation, because it's kind of had had many lives since it left Cambridge. Sure. Well, I just want to say one quick thing, which was that when we brought it to the museum, um, we didn't have a space to to put it, and there was a little gallery that had a big wall of windows um, facing the the public. And we decided to unpack the kitchen in front of the public, and to make ourselves into a live exhibit, essentially, um, which was actually really useful because we could hear all sorts of people talking about you know what Julia meant to them how excited they would be to see the entire kitchen uh, on display, how they wanted to see how Julia cooked, and and they were really looking forward to seeing the whole thing put together. Um, mm-hmm. That was great feedback. So we were able to have, as you said, the, the uh, kitchen was on display in a small gallery for almost 10 years. Um, and then uh, we had to do some... Um, work on that part of the building, had to pack up the kitchen. But then we have another gallery, a larger space, um, also on the first floor of the museum, where we reassembled Julia's Kitchen in 2012, and it is now the opening experience of a larger exhibition about uh, big changes in how and what we eat since um, 1950. It's called. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. I, I wanted to touch upon something that I've been really struck by, which you 
you sort of started to talk about when you were mentioning, you know, the unpacking as a live exhibit is without gilding the lily too much, it really is kind of a religious experience when people visit it, at least for people who are particularly interested in food and were very aware of Julia. There's a certain reverence and calm and you know, it is, it's an experience to go. Partly it's the quality of the exhibition, and it's also the, I think, very personal relationship Julia developed with the public. Do you, do you think I'm totally off base with that? Is that my bias, or, or would you agree? Not at all. Not at all. We observed from the moment of the first exhibition opened that there was this sense of a pilgrimage, that people would come, stand, in line, because it was such a small gallery that they had to stand in line to get in. Um, on the very first day, we had two chefs who had brought their baby daughter to stand in line to see Julia's kitchen, and they said to us, you know, this is her, this is her heritage. Uh, we want her to see, you know, where, this, uh, where our inspiration started. And, you know, we've seen that time and time and time again. There is that sort of sense of, of reverence. But you know what? There's also a great sense of joy and fun. And, you know, people love looking in and seeing things that they might have in their kitchen and talking to each other about it. Um, We observed that people, you know, sort of unlike in some of our other exhibitions where people speak only with the people they came with, Julia's Kitchen, everybody was talking to everybody else. And, um, you know, you would have people comparing notes about polenta pots. They would be comparing notes about the dough hook on the KitchenAid stand mixer. And this is the kind of, of back and forth. And, and then people sharing their Julia stories, their favorite recipes. What was the recipe that really, you know, got them hooked on caring about food and learning new uh, cooking techniques? So do you, do you think it's about relatability, both to Julia herself and the objects that everybody has a kitchen with many of these things in it? Right, right, right. And, you know, it, it is this, this, you know, complex object that has many, many associations that are very personal to people, uh, but that people also feel that they want to share, kind of the way people like to share, you know, about food, um, talking about food. So, you know, we really try to keep that uh, line of thinking and communication open in the new installation and to have space around the kitchen for people to hang out and talk to each other uh, while, of course, they're, they're looking at the uh, clips of um, Julia's television shows uh, on our uh, Kitchen Wisdom uh, video loop. Okay. That, 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 that's great. I never get tired of that story. It's, it's always so fascinating and adds, I think, a lot, you know, it's a history of the history, if you will. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to hear more from Paula about the latest food history programming at the American History Museum. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. 
In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. Once you put something as iconic as Julia's Kitchen in a museum, it tends to give people ideas. And boy, its popularity really seems to have inspired a lot of fun developments at the American History Museum, most notably an exhibit on the modern history of food and wine in America, as well as a state-of-the-art demonstration kitchen in the recently redesigned and reopened One West Wing. So Paula is going to tell us more about all that stuff. Maybe we'll start with the current exhibit, The Food Transforming the American Table, 1950 to 2000. Tell us about that and what do you think has made it successful? I think we started touching upon those things. Maybe you can elaborate. Sure. Um, Yes, Julia Child's Child's Kitchen, of course, is, you know, one of the elements that makes it very successful. Um, But, you know, Todd, we conduct formal evaluations of exhibitions here. And um, sometimes we also hang out in the gallery watching how visitors interact with the material because we want to learn, too, what uh, really engages our visitors. And it's pretty clear that, that people really relate to the stories and the objects in this exhibition. You know, the time frame is very familiar to people. It's post-1950. And, you know, there, there is something for almost everyone uh, in the show because it, it really relates to material that they might have grown up with or that they might have heard about from uh, parents and grandparents. Um, really, the, the exhibition is most successful, I think, with families and other intergenerational groups. Uh, because these objects spark memories, um, which often, again, leads to people sharing their stories right on the spot. And one example of that would be, you know, the TV dinner and the dinner trays, you know, the, those little trays that you set up while you're um, watching television and eating your little TV dinner. This uh, really hits people of a certain age, I'll say, um, <laughs> because it's a reminder of, of just what a treat it was, first of all to be, have this, this little contained dinner, um, which was often given to kids and teens um, when their parents were going out or were just not going to oh, be there. Oh, Paul, you're bringing table. back vivid memories. That was exactly yeah, what we were allowed at TV dinner <laughs> occasionally. And yes, the little compartments like made my, my day. Absolutely, of, the know. little compartments with yeah, the treat. And then, you know, being allowed to sit in front of the television and eat was just not something that people did. Um, and, you know, again, to see a grandparent perhaps talking with a grandchild about, yeah, it was a real treat to eat in front of the TV, and the grandkid says, what? We do that all the time. Uh, but but this, you know, is sort of um, just looking at that part of the exhibit again, you know, evokes these, these memories and starts a discussion. Um, you know, kitchen tools the same way. There was an era when the the electric can opener and the fondue pot and the crock pot, you know, were the, the harvest gold and the avocado green. And people, again, remember that because those are the things that they had on their kitchen counters in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. 
And and do you do you think this familiarity and relatability? Do you think that also helps people understand that that history is sort of happening all the time? That it's not just something from way back five hundred a thousand years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. It sparks that conversation about the past, and people then bring it up to the present um, to talk to each other about it. Um, you know, one of the stories in the show that I think is really interesting to watch people it has to do with the counterculture. Um, the stories of people going back to the land, uh, going to um, communes and collectives, people starting food co-ops, people turning to um, alternative foods, uh, vegetarianism, for example. Um, this is a reminder about a time period when you know people were really concerned about um, how food was grown, and they were concerned about also the, you know, the social dimensions of food and sharing. And so, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, people again in these intergenerational groups, one member may have been part of a commune and, you know, somebody who is a, a young person today, you know, thinking that, wow, this is amazing that people were caring about the same things that many people are caring about today. I think that's a great example because I was going to ask you about how the museum is using food as a lens to teach American history. And I, I think you you were just illustrating that um, with the example you gave. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was trying to imagine how many visitors to the museum had been on communes. You're saying that that's a quite common conversation you overhear? Absolutely. And when people see uh, some of the objects, when they see the uh, yogurt maker, when they see the moosewood cookbook, um, so many people uh, just say, oh, that is the cookbook that made me, you know, think that vegetarianism was actually going to be delicious, um, in addition to um, aligning with the ethics um, of, you know, not eating meat. Um, various various um, other parts of those that exhibit um, also spark um, those kinds of, of memories and, um, you know, really speak, speak to people. So tell, tell us more about what's on the agenda, because I know you have more food history programming than just this, the, the food, capital F-O-O-D exhibit. What, what else is on the agenda in food history programming this year? Yeah, well, we, um, as you mentioned, um, we took Julia's message to heart and we built a kitchen in the middle of the museum and, you know, the programming that we do a lot of programming, but the one that I think aligns most closely with Julia's legacy, you know, to care about food and its preparation, um, is really our series called Cooking Up History, um, which we started uh, in 2015 when we got this brand new uh, demonstration kitchen and performance plaza um, in the, on the first floor of the museum. Um, so since 2015, we have been inviting chefs, um, home cooks and chefs, uh, to demonstrate uh, a couple of dishes, uh, recipes on the stage, and we frame up the discussion in terms of history. Um, it could be the history of ingredients. It could be the history of the dish itself. It could be a connection to a certain cultural tradition. It could be a regional specialty. Um, and it could also relate to a certain um, individual or a period in history. So this is a really exciting program. Um, we 
have a Cooking Up History program coming up on Saturday, February 10th, uh, Carnival and Haitian Food Traditions, and we are partnering with the Embassy of the Republic of Haiti here in D.C., along with the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture, to bring a uh, chef from Haiti to the stage and to speak with our food historian, Ashley Rose Young, and our curator, Joanne Hippolyti, from uh, the African American Museum, um, to talk about um, food traditions that are part of Carnival in, in Haiti. Um, we're, in March, welcoming Chef Alon Shia from uh, New Orleans, and he is going to be um, demonstrating a couple of recipes um, from his new book about um, his, uh, his uh, Israeli cuisine. Um, you know, so we have a full uh, calendar of events coming up. But, you know, Todd, we've been, we have covered a lot of territory. I was just looking at the list of uh, food programs uh, that we've done recently. Uh, we've been to Trinidad for um, black cake for the holidays uh, in December. And, uh, you know, we've, we've really um, tried to, to cast a very uh, broad net to bring our audience to the kitchen stage to really explore some of these aspects of uh, American food history and how they relate to who we are. And I think the kitchen, the, this program, Cooking Up History in the Demonstration Space, and for anyone who's invited to do a demonstration at the museum, it is the Cadillac of demonstration kitchens because the museum did ex exhaustive research of best practices in kitchen design. And so it is a amazing, amazing facility. And I think more importantly, it, it works really well. And as a result, it has this effect of really in an interactive, enjoyable, educational, and fun way, all Julia Child principles, brings history to life and enables you to really have a much more interactive experience than I think most people are familiar with when they, they go to a museum. And, I, and, and it seems to me that it's been wildly successful so far. It has been very successful, but I will tell you the one thing that we're still working on is trying to figure out how we can share the food that we cook on the stage with the public. We are not licensed food purveyors, and so we, we can't really do that. But our um, solution thus far has been that our wonderful chef at, um, in our museum cafe prepares uh, recipes inspired by what's going on on the stage. And so pe our visitors can actually um, participate in that way in the program. Um, well, that, that, that's exciting. And I, 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 think, I, I don't think that's a huge shortcoming, but I think it, it speaks to the museum's desire to do everything as, as well and, and with the, the best experience possible. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what happens in the fall going into year three um, with the Food History Weekend. Do you want to just give a brief... Uh, Yes, this is when we do our cooking up history um, all day on, on the stage. But first, um, because it's just not a one-day festival, it's three days. Um, we start uh, with, this year it will be November 1st through the 3rd. Uh, November 1st will be the gala at which uh, the Julia Child Foundation will award the Julia Child Award to a worthy recipient um, to be announced later this year. Exactly. And... Um, the gala is this wonderful way that the museum and the foundation work together to honor Julia's legacy 
and to shine a light on somebody who has made a huge difference. Um, From the museum's perspective, we always try to work with the recipient in collecting something that reflects kind of the core of their life in food. Um, And so we have collected material from Jacques Pepin, from um, Rick Bayless, and most recently from Danny Meyer. And uh, these collections are turning out to be really interesting because we work as closely as possible with the recipient to find just the thing, the notebook, the menus, you know, the the kitchen tools, the chef's jacket that will help tell that story. So that's the gala. Um, The uh, next day is a day of roundtables where we will explore a theme uh, still to be announced, um, but a theme from various perspectives. We bring together scholars, historians, practitioners, policymakers, writers, and students um, to really explore a, a certain issue or set of issues around food, both history and today. Um, and then Saturday is our festival. It's something for everyone. We've got you know our Spark Lab, our demonstration kitchen, um, talks, lectures, all sorts of, of wonderful activities for people. Uh, the museum just rocks that day. It's, it's pretty amazing. And I think a key thing to emphasize before um, we move on to your Julia moment is that all of these events are open to the public. The gala is a fundraiser, so it does require you to buy a ticket. And the proceeds from from those fundraisers support all of this programming that Paul has talked about. And then the Food History Weekend is also free and open to the public, although you do need to register on the roundtable day. So I think that once again, that really emphasizes all the exciting interactive experiences in the history, in American history, in the history of food and wine in America that are going on all the time at the American History Museum. And there are a lot of counterparts that um, live with these activities and exhibits on the web so that if you can't get to Washington, D.C., you can experiencing, uh, experience parts of them at least. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Paul is going to reveal her Julia moment. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we segue into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Paula, what's your Julia moment? (laughs) 
This is like asking me to name my favorite Julia artifact in the kitchen, but um, I did think about this a bit. And I think besides the moment when she welcomed us into her kitchen in Cambridge, you know, for the first time, I think it would have to be when we welcomed her back to the museum to see her kitchen assembled. Um, And we hoped that we had assembled it perfectly. Um, That was in August 2002 and was within days of her 90th birthday. Um, Julia arrived that day early with her niece, Phyla, and of course, when she asked to go inside her kitchen, we couldn't and didn't refuse. Um, As you know, Todd, we have to limit entry inside due to (laughs) conservation. Yes, it's hermetically sealed, but with very good reason, because as as you know, but most people don't occur to them and tell them it's actually everything is in a constant state of decay that you and your colleagues are in this elaborate process of trying to prevent. That's yes, that's one way of looking at it. Um, but it's also that you know the floor is made of paper uh, because we couldn't collect her linoleum. You know things like real practical things like that. Um, but Julia stepped inside. She looked around and she just said, you know, this makes me feel like turning something on and starting to cook. Um, you know, which of course was was just music to our ears. It meant that we had in fact put things where they were supposed to be. Um, but Todd, she was so gracious to us, and she seemed to have boundless energy and grace and goodwill for everyone who was there helping celebrate her birthday uh, that evening. Um, people are still talking about that evening, uh, people on the staff here, because 38 chefs from the D.C. region greeted her with you know, tremendous enthusiasm and with their food. Um, I have a photo on my desk as we speak that shows a room of people in chef's whites, and there in the middle of it all is Julia uh, wearing hot pink and looking just radiant. Um, the next morning, uh, after she did this big party, um, she turned up looking equally radiant for a live interview from the kitchen for a, a morning TV show. And, you know, I'll never forget thinking, you know, here is someone who just turned 90 years old, and she's still going strong. She's so engaged. She's so lively. And she's such an inspiration to so many people. And for me, you know, the takeaway message was to work hard, to get things right, and to keep going uh, with grace and good cheer through it all. And, you know, I take that with me because that's the kind of work we do here. We do work hard. We get it right as bright as possible. And we try to do so with grace and good cheer. I think that's a great choice because I I realize now I sort of asked Paula the impossible to name her Julia moment, but she did an excellent job because of the consummate professional that she is and picked one moment. Paula doesn't know that a lot of people have cheated and picked more than one moment, but that was a really great sum up. And I think remembering Julia's energy and grace and almost the transference of that through the exhibit to the public is, is a wonderful way to wrap up. So thanks, Paula. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. And on Instagram, search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn more, better yet, visit the Food, Transforming the American Table, 1950-2000 to exhibit, or about food history programming at the National Museum of American History, go to americanhistory.si.edu and search food history. 
You can even take a virtual tour of Julia's Kitchen on AmericanHistory.si.edu forward slash Julia Child. To check out highlights of the 2017 Smithsonian Food History Weekend and gala presentation, the Julia Child Award, go to AmericanHistory.si.edu forward slash events forward slash food dash history dash weekend. If you want to be the first to hear about the museum's latest exhibits, programs, and activities, follow on Twitter. It's at AM History Museum. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.